Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. I'm Anne. I am so honored and excited to have MJ Dennis with us today. She is a licensed professional counselor, a licensed marriage and family therapist associate, a certified sex therapist, and she is APSAT certified as a clinical partner trauma specialist in Austin, Texas. She works in private practice at Crossroads Counseling Associates, where she counsels individuals and couples who have experienced or been affected by sex addiction. Today we're going to talk about safe sex after sexual betrayal. When we say safe sex, we mean emotional safety, physical safety, sexual safety, all of the above. And MJ, in thinking about this topic, where do we even start? You know, we're very much on the buddy system. When we choose our spouse, it's really a matter of, you know, hey, I'll get your back. You get mine. I'll keep you safe and you keep me safe, and we'll look out for each other. So when we're in relationship with someone and our person has secretive behaviors, whether with another person or with pornography, this betrayal registers as a safety risk. Our amygdala, that part of our brain that helps us detect danger or threat, our amygdala registers betrayal as danger. Our brain actually registers betrayal as a matter of life and death. It sure feels like that. Yes. And working with partners, I often hear stories of how they discovered their spouse's sex addiction or their betrayal behaviors. And ladies will tell me when they found out about the betrayal, it took them to their knees. Some girls throw up. Some girls can't breathe. Some girls can't get off the floor because their person is their person for safety. And when they are betrayed and their brain says, I'm not safe, I'm not okay in the world, ladies really lose their ability to function at times. Many partners report to me, they get sick, they lose weight, they can't go to work. This discovery registers as a crisis, as danger, as a matter of life and death. I felt that right after my husband's arrest, when I realized things were as bad as they were, because before I did not understand my true situation with his addiction and then related behaviors. I lost probably about 15 pounds in three weeks and couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. It was really bad, especially realizing that my person who I was relying on, he was never safe, but I didn't know that until that moment, if that makes any sense. Yes. So if our spouse betrays us and if that registers as a safety risk, how can wives of addicts ever feel safe with an unfaithful spouse again? People really experience dissonance when their spouse betrays them. Going back to us being in a relationship that registers to us as safety, I'm your person, I've got your back, I'm with you, you're with me, you've got my back. We turn to our spouse as a source of safety. But when there's betrayal, now that person who's supposed to be safe for us now they are actually the source of pain. 
So many times in the aftermath of betrayal, ladies will tell me they experience what I call a come here, go away syndrome. Come here, my husband. Come here for safety. Oh, wait, you just betrayed me. You've lied. You've cheated. Go away for safety. Wait, mm -hmm. wait, wait, where are you going? Come back for safety. No, no, go away for safety. And they do come here, go away. This can happen emotionally. We can want to go to our husband for safety so he can understand us and hold us emotionally. We also can go toward our husband for sexual safety, for physical safety. We are so vulnerable when we are going to be sexual with someone. When we take off our clothes, when we are naked with someone, that leaves us tremendously vulnerable. And that for women especially, the sexual act is one of our most vulnerable times ever. We're allowing someone to be that close to us, it doesn't get more vulnerable than that. Mm -hmm. So women often must feel safe with their sexual partner to be sexual. Mm -hmm. After the ravages of betrayal trauma and from being in a relationship with a sex addict, someone with chronic betrayal behaviors, Partners often need to feel safe in order to show up sexually. For partners who choose to stay with their sexually addicted spouse, this means they're choosing to stay with the source of pain and the source of their safety risk. Mm -hmm. These ladies then try to navigate not only how to function daily with someone they don't trust, but they also do this tough job of trying to figure out how to maneuver physical and sexual intimacy. It's interesting that you were talking about when they stay with their spouse. On the other hand, when you've been betrayed, for example, in my case, once I realized my husband was not safe, I set a no contact boundary with him until I could see that he was safe enough to be able to communicate with. And then all that I observed was him taking money away, him not seeing the kids, him accusing me of things. Yeah. And he would tell people, well, I can't do anything because she won't talk to me. She won't even have sex with me. I can't even interact with her. So how do I do that? Mm -hmm. He was not in any way trying to reestablish that safety. The trauma comes in both cases. It comes when you decide to stay. It also comes when you decide that you need to do maybe some really intense boundaries and then you're watching the person start attacking you even more. In both of these cases, determining how safe the person is is the first step, which is why I love AppSats, that the first phase is that safety and stabilization phase so that you can make sure that you're determining your level of safety before moving forward even just in having a conversation with someone, let alone maybe having sex with them down the line. Am I making sense? Yes, yes, I agree with you. Establishing safety and what we call stabilization has to be the first step. We cannot allow ourselves to be that vulnerable 
with somebody unless we know we are safe with them. So it makes sense to me that you needed to establish a no contact rule so that you could reestablish safety. Many women, they're thinking about sex and really they maybe need to take a step back and even determine if they're emotionally safe to even have a conversation, for example. You know, they're they're not being emotionally abused. In my experience in working with uh, partners and after initially learning that their spouse is cheating on them. Betrayed spouses frequently will become really fearful that more betrayal will happen again. And sometimes partners will choose to be sexual with someone with a sex addiction, with their partner with a sex addiction, to try to keep him from cheating on her again. Mm-hmm. And women will often compare themselves to their husband's affair partner, be it a pornographic image or a prostitute. Betrayed spouses will compare themselves to that affair partner and wonder what's wrong with them and why they don't measure up to the affair partner. And sometimes partners will choose to be sexual in ways they wouldn't otherwise to try to measure up to what they imagine that affair partner was like or to measure up to the person in the pornography. Which is so sad because we cannot compete with pornography. Right. If you try, yeah, and if you try to compete with pornography, you will always, always lose. Always. Comparison is dangerous for us no matter what because we're at risk either way. If we compare ourselves and we are better than, we risk arrogance. If we compare ourselves and we are less than, we risk shame and self-condemnation. And either way we go with comparison, we really can come out on the losing end. Sometimes partners who make the decision to be sexual with their spouse who has betrayed them are really at risk of compromising their own values. When girls get scared and they become sexual after there's been betrayal, they might feel like, I I need to do this so that he won't cheat on me again or he won't leave me. Sometimes they can compromise their own values and find themselves doing something they don't even want to do that they might never have done out of fear and desperation. And I think that's really heartbreaking. I know it happens. And sometimes girls really experience distress from having that experience. It's sad, too, because the only thing they're trying to do is establish safety for themselves. They're attempting to establish safety, but it's not going to get them what they want. Yes. Thank you for bringing it back to why would we have sex with someone who has betrayed us? Why would we do that? It goes back to safety. If that's my person and I go to them for safety... I might be sexual with them in the aftermath of betrayal because they're the person I go to for safety. I'm trying to maintain that. 
when I'm working with partners, they often ask me with despair, why do I still want to be with him? Why, after he's hurt me so much, do I want to stay? And in that place, it's important that we realize she's not staying because there's something wrong with her or she's broken or she's doing something that's not appropriate. She's staying because that's her person and she's attached to him. Mm -hmm. Often I hear ladies saying, it's my fault he betrayed me. It must be if I had been thinner, sexier, something, or if I had been more than... Or less. Or less. <laughs> I feel like less. Have I asked less questions? If I wouldn't have told my opinion as much, if I wouldn't have stuck up for myself and told him what I thought and, you know, those types of things. In my world, it's if I would have been smaller. And really... There's nothing you or another betrayed partner could have been, done, acted like to keep the betrayal from happening. Someone with a sex addiction who's in their active addiction, who's not in active recovery, will make choices to betray. And that is their choice. It's not because you or the betrayed spouse did or said something wrong or weren't enough or were too much. It's because that person chose to betray. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's on him. And so in that case, the only thing that we can do is get support and reach out. Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of a care team. I believe that recovering from sex addiction, from the impact of sex addiction, really takes a team. We need a safe support system. Many times a therapist, a coach, a support group can all be instrumental in helping partners heal after they've been impacted by their spouse's sex addiction. Especially, at least for me, when I get in a group and I hear all of the women talking about similar behaviors in their spouses, and then I look at us and we're all so different. For me, it was that I asked too many questions and that I shared my opinion too much. And I was quote unquote too controlling or whatever. And for other people, it's that they didn't say enough. All of a sudden I start saying, wait a minute, it doesn't matter what we are like. The behaviors of sexual addicts are very similar and they use the same tactics regardless of what their spouse is doing. Yes, I recently had a client who joined a support group and she said there were women of all different shapes, sizes, ethnicities, ages, educational backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter the differences. What she recognized is they were all betrayed by someone who had a sex addiction and it proved to her it didn't matter how she showed up in the world if she was in relationship with someone with a sex addiction who was active in his addiction she was going to experience betrayal and that was not her fault absolutely yeah so mj what typically keeps partners from saying no to their sexually addicted spouse when he is not in recovery 
partners get really scared here and often wonder, is it okay to say no? And I think what gets in the way of saying no is a list of fears. Mm-hmm. Sometimes girls feel a fear of further betrayal and that keeps them from saying no or it causes them to hesitate to say no to being sexual. Ladies fear being criticized for saying no or being condemned by their spouse. Uh, Ladies feel a fear of being a bad wife or a fear of being alone. I think there's a huge list of fears that get in the way. Mm -hmm. One of those fears being that her ex or her husband would say, well, she's not giving me sex because in society, that's like terrible. In society, if a husband says, well, it's a sexless marriage, she refuses to have sex with me, then all of a sudden all the problems are our fault, like my fault, because I'm saying no when they don't understand all the reasons why I might be saying no. And so just the fact that they could use that very serious weapon of, well, she refuses to have sex with me. You know, what kind of a relationship is that? That is so terrifying to women. Yes. And addicts tend to use that as justification for their betrayal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is not fair or accurate, he will choose to betray not because she is or isn't sexual with him. Yes, exactly. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So talk about values conflicts in this situation. And thinking about why partners feel scared to say no. Sometimes they experience values conflicts. Some examples of that. On one hand, she might value being a good and loving wife. And she might tell herself that being that kind of wife means she's sexual or she shows up sexually. A conflicting value that might happen at the very same time is she might value safety and wanting to pull away from him to be safe. So on one hand, she could value, oh, I think I should show up sexually. At the same moment, she's valuing, oh, I think I shouldn't show up sexually. Again, do I go toward him or do I pull away from him? Mm -hmm. Uh, Another example, ladies often tell me they value keeping an intact family unit. They have a high value on a cohesive family. Mm -hmm. They might also value separating so the kids aren't exposed to sex addiction or they have a limited exposure to sex addiction Mm -hmm. or emotional abuse or gaslighting or other safety issues in the home. And she might feel like she has to have sex to maintain an intact family. At the same time, she values safety and feels like pulling back from being sexual with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Another value that came to mind as we're talking about these values conflicts, many girls talk with me about they value honoring God. For some girls, they think of 
honoring God means honoring or submitting sexually to their husband. Mm -hmm. A conflicting value that often happens simultaneously, they may feel I'm honoring God by being authentic, Mm -hmm. by protecting this body that God gave me, by protecting my heart that God gave me. So now what do I do? Am I honoring God by being sexual when I don't want to? Or am I honoring God by not being sexual and protecting myself? Mm-hmm. And really being honest. I think it comes yes. down to being to honesty. Honoring God by being honest with myself about how I really feel. Yes, that one gets really confusing. Yeah, it does. And it's hard, especially when so many of us are distanced from our emotions, because we've been so concerned about our addict husband. How does he feel? How is he doing? What can I do to help him? What can I do to make sure our family's intact? That sometimes we're distant from even knowing that we feel unsafe. So many women have said to me, you know, I didn't even recognize that I felt unsafe. And I don't even know what that even means. Yes. Yes. I'm not even sure what it means to be emotionally safe. I don't even know if I've ever felt that before. With all that being said, why do you think it's okay for betrayed spouses to say no to sex after betrayal or even before betrayal, actually? <laughs> I mean, you've got that, but if, if they feel unsafe, do you think it's okay to say no? I do think it's okay to say no. I'd like to talk about saying no after discovering sex addiction is impacting the relationship. Let's start there. We can view sex addiction as an intimacy disorder, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Intimacy disorder, intimacy into me see disorder, not ordered or working. People who experience an intimacy disorder tend to not know how to be close and connected well, Mm -hmm. authentically. Um, And so there's real value in taking sex off the table during sex addiction recovery for a purposeful period of abstinence. And the purpose of this period of abstinence, one of the purposes, is so the couple can work on establishing emotional intimacy. Mm-hmm. As safety's building and communication is improving, the couple can start taking steps toward reestablishing or establishing for the first time safe, non-sexual touch, then establishing safe sexual touch. So I think there's a an order to sex addiction recovery for the addict. The order involves creating emotional intimacy, being close and connected emotionally, then learning how to have non-sexual safe intimacy, then learning how to have sexual intimacy. This is very interesting to me because about six months before my husband's arrest, I decided that I needed emotional intimacy and that I was going to stop initiating sex. I told him, I don't feel emotionally safe. I'm going to stop initiating sex. You're, I told him, you're, at, you're welcome to initiate it if you'd like to. 
but I'm not going Mm -hmm. to initiate it anymore. I need to see more from you in terms of being emotionally connected. And then nothing happened. Literally nothing happened. He didn't attempt in any way, shape or form to reestablish emotional intimacy. In fact, I had purchased a workbook and we did it one night and he said, oh, I'm so excited about this. This is so awesome. And I said, okay, well, you're going to have to be the one that pulls this out and sits us down to do this. I need this to feel emotionally safe. Like you have to be the one that, that instigates this. He never pulled it out, not once. And so I think this type of boundary is also very helpful in seeing where they really are to see, okay, I'm establishing this abstinence to determine, are they really going to work toward emotional intimacy or are they just going to be like, okay, well, she won't have sex with me. So what can I do? You know, like, uh, well, this stinks, you know, and they don't try and actually connect with you. I'm glad you're bringing up that kind of dynamic. There's something called excess versus deprivation. Let's apply this dynamic of excess versus deprivation to sex addiction. So so let's imagine in a relationship, the husband has the sex addiction and within his marriage, deprivation is happening. Let's imagine he is not reaching for his wife. She is not having emotional intimacy or physical intimacy or not to the degree that she would hope for. Instead, he is acting out sexually, having excess sexual experiences outside of the relationship. During attempts to change that, maybe as you're describing, before recognizing the sex addiction, um, he might make attempts to, okay, I'm gonna stop being sexual outside of the relationship going to do a workbook. I'm going to try to not have excess outside of the marriage. Very often what happens is he might shut that down, but it doesn't teeter totter. It doesn't make the intimacy within the marriage get better. And I see with the couples I'm working with when in that first stage of safety and stability and making sure that recovery period, there is not sexual betrayal happening outside of the marriage. Again, the hope for the couple is if we shut down the excess outside of the marriage, will it teeter-totter and we'll now have intimacy inside the marriage, except that's not what typically happens. Instead, the typical experience is now we have deprivation across the board. Now, the sexual behaviors are not happening outside the marriage, nor are they happening inside of the marriage, because he still has an intimacy disorder. He still doesn't know how to be intimate. So the couple has to go through the process that I'll describe later on of how to move through the emotional intimacy the non-sexual touch intimacy, then on to the physical intimacy. And sometimes sex addicts have to really, they're learning this for the first time. Yeah. That being said, MJ, I can imagine some couples worry how and when they'll start having sex again once it's off the table. Can you talk about this? What is the process for this? One of the 
common beliefs of someone with a sex addiction is sex is my most important need. And there has to be a retraining of the brain to help somebody with a sex addiction wrestle with this, to help them understand that sex is not their most important need. Because quite frankly, we could live without having sex, right? If someone mm -hmm. is not sexual, they're not going to die or spontaneously combust. While we want couples to be able to be both friends and lovers, we want to help the couple initially create safety in their relationship. And that's the part where we stop the acting out behaviors, stop the betrayals. Yeah, and also stop the emotional abuse and the gaslighting and the related behaviors that go along with it, right? Absolutely. Although, Anne, I, I see that sometimes that's harder to change. For some addicts, they, they can stop the betrayal behaviors. They can stop the sexual acting out. But changing their emotionally abusive behaviors, how they show up in conflict and um, how they use humor, that takes more time. Mm -hmm. That's a relearning of how to communicate and how to respond to their person. So that actually takes a lot of work. Yeah. And that's part of the recovery after sex addiction, right? First, we achieve safety and stability. Next, I believe the next step is disclosure and transparency. And I think that's so important because, well, a couple reasons. Disclosures that are eked out over time, a little bit here, a little bit there, that every time a betrayed spouse hears of another betrayal, it just takes her back to ground zero, takes her to her knees. There can be real trauma in getting little bits of information of betrayal at a time. Ladies need to know what they're dealing with so they can make choices about whether or not they want to stay and work on the marriage. A therapeutic disclosure where the couple is being kept really safe mm -hmm. and they're being walked through how to disclose all the information that's necessary. They have to have transparency to mm -hmm. then be able to move on to working on communication, communication. Yeah. sharing thoughts and feelings. Yes. We recommend that women in conjunction with a therapeutic full disclosure consider a therapeutic polygraph as well. Yes, that can help make sure that all information is out mm -hmm. that can help partners really feel another degree of safety with the person who's betrayed them. So then when we get to that communication phase, one of the things I've been learning about the abuse is that abuse is really a perception issue. And the reason why it happens is because the abuser perceives his victim in a certain way, which 
continually causes the emotional abuse. Changing those mental processes is going to take a really long time. And if those abusive behaviors are happening, couples therapy is counterindicated until about two years after the last abuse episode. From a sex therapist's point of view, can you talk about that a little bit? Like the process of someone deciding that they're going to not be emotionally abusive anymore in the context of sex addiction? When it comes to sex addiction, I find that many addicts exhibit profound gaslighting behaviors because they're trying not to get caught. They're trying to get their spouse to back up, to not find out about their secret. They will be manipulative, bullying, mean, and say critical and contemptuous things to get the wife to back up. So in recovery from sex addiction, there's this period of teaching them how to recognize how they respond to being questioned, to having conflict. They have to learn how their brain wants them to gaslight and they have to challenge that and then learn how to respond differently. So that really is a process and validates again why in some ways they might have more immediate success in stopping the betrayal behaviors, the sexual acting out, and then it could take a long time to learn how to respond kindly, not defensively, Mm -hmm. being able to accept influence. That goes a long way toward helping the couple start moving toward reestablishing a sexual relationship, right? The safety has to come first. If you feel isolated, confused, you're trying to cope on your own and things are just not working, your therapist doesn't understand, you're not making progress, please come to BTR. Our support groups are specifically for you with trained APSATS coaches. We know there are individual differences and that each situation is unique, but we've all had similar challenges. Everyone at BTR has been through what you're going through and we understand. So please schedule a support call today or join our BTR coaching club, which is a very inexpensive option to have up to three support groups a week that you can drop in and out of. We'll also be putting up new topic-based support groups on the site very soon, so stay tuned for that. If you're interested in immediate assistance through a peer-to-peer Facebook group, it's not AppSets-led, but it is a good place to start. Please join our community. Go to btr.org and scroll down and enter your email and click on join our community. MJ, thank you so much for your thoughtful responses. I appreciate the time that you've taken to talk with us today. We're going to have MJ on again next week talking about healthy sexuality after betrayal. If this podcast was helpful to you, please rate it on iTunes. Every rating helps women who are isolated and need help find us. We're also a 501c3 and your donations keep this podcast up and running. So please go to our site today, btr.org backslash donate. MJ, thank you. And thank you so much. I'm looking forward to talking with you again next week. Until next week, stay safe out there.